Welcome to the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Brian Russell, and today it's my privilege to welcome uh, to the show Andrew Lang. Andrew's an educator in the Pacific Northwest. He's an alumnus of Richard Rohr's Living School for Action and Contemplation, and he's the author, and he's here to talk about his new book, Unmasking the Inner Critic, Lessons for Living an Unconstricted Life. In this conversation, we're going to go deep into how to heal from the lies that we tell ourselves. One of the things that I've talked a lot about on Centering Prayer episodes on this podcast is on how you'll be confronted with what's going on inside of your body. And Andrew today, and in his book, he's going to help us learn how to do a little deeper inner work of excavation with spiritual practices and then ways to live into our bodies to open ourselves up to more grace to be healed um, from these lies that afflict us sometimes from childhood. Andrew's going to open up talking about an encounter when he was 18 where he was um, sad because his family was leaving a church. His father was a pastor and he was crying and a, a, an older man, a, a, a Christian that he respected, just said, you know, men don't cry. Now, that's obviously one of those wounding lies that we can live with. So you're going to love this conversation. I found it really helpful. Before we jump in, let me remind you, if you're interested in going a little deeper in Centering Prayer and Contemplative Spirituality, I invite you to subscribe to this podcast. If you'd like to be invited to Centering Prayer workshops that I hold for free every month or receive some more information, sign up at centeringprayerbook.com. And of course, uh, if you are interested in any of my signature coaching programs uh, for pastors or spiritual leaders, check out deepdivespirituality.com. It would be a real privilege to connect with you. If you just have questions or you would like to give feedback, you can email me directly, deepdivespirituality at gmail.com. As always, all of these things will be in the show notes. Let's jump into the conversation that I had with Andrew about his new book, Unmasking the Inner Critic. Welcome, Andrew, to the show. It's so great to have you on today. Super good to be here. Yeah, congratulations on uh, publishing your new book, uh, Unmasking the Inner Critic, Lessons for Living an Unconstricted Life. Uh, would you just share briefly your spiritual journey and, and again, and I guess broad brushstrokes that have brought you to the the learning that went into this book and uh, talk about uh, a little bit about what why you wrote the book, if you would. Yeah, totally. Um, so I grew up progressive United Methodist and uh, up here in the Seattle area. And I think one of the big stories, and well, I can stay as brief as I can, um, one of the big stories that I think set my entire life trajectory in motion um, was at 18, we were shifting out of the parish that we were in, out of the church that we are in. And so we're at this final service, and uh, there was this powerful moment where everyone was giving testimony. We had been there 10 years. So everyone was sharing these stories of what did it mean to grow with our family over the 10 years? What did it mean to, to watch us grow over the 10 years? It was just beautiful. And so I was absolutely bawling my eyes out. I'm, I'm sitting there at 18 in the midst of this massive tra uh, transition anyway, from high school to college and also spiritual community. 
And so I'm crying and the service wraps up and this guy who had been at the church, I think since he was a child, so he's an old timer in, in that community, he comes striding across the room, 6'3", six, 6'4", six, very tall man. He comes over, he puts his hand on my shoulder and he looks me dead in the eye and he says, men don't cry. And I think in that moment, first, like, like that is for an 18 year old to be told in a high intensity moment, don't trust your body, don't trust your emotions, what you're doing is wrong, you're not a man, right? That was an emasculation, right? Um, to be told that, I think what I was processing is, if this is what an entire lifetime of spiritual development leads to, I don't need it. Or at least this isn't it. <laughs> um, and that really set my, I think, my spiritual journey up. I, I spent a couple of years just completely removed from certainly traditional religious spaces and I think removed from any connection with my own sense of spirituality as well. And what brought me kind of back towards my first, my own inner experience of spirituality was um, my brother and I sat down at one point and we just said, what would it look like? We're, we're longing for a community that has depth. What would that look like? And we didn't have any language for it at the time, but we said uh, more silence, time to think, time to let our bodies feel what our bodies feel, right? Time to settle. I think that was our actual language. Um, it would look like reading small bits of wisdom and processing those small bits. Um, and what it really turned into was kind of a contemplative space, uh, actually a fully contemplative space. We didn't have that language for it at the time. And that pushed me for the next, it's now been 10 years since we started, uh, we, we started a community in Seattle. It's now been 10 years since then. And that has really informed so much of my spirituality, of finding the sense of the divine within me so that I can then feel the resonance of it around me. Um, and then helping people to, to begin unlayering the stuff that we put on top of ourselves that keep us from that resonance or keep us from that connection with the divine all around us. That's pretty broad strokes, but. <laughs> no, that's great. I mean, I love that opening story. It was just so such an odd thing sort of to, to say, because you could imagine um, at goodbyes that people would get teary eyed. But it's interesting also that you interpreted, um, you know, kind of what he said. It's so powerfully. So did, did you have language for that at the time? Or has it just been a retrospect? You realized that that was one of these, um, I don't know, it's one of those zinger lines that'll just spin around in your head that you have to then, um, what would you say, sort of do an exorcism on? Oh my God. Yeah. So at the time I knew it was, I knew it was wrong. Like I knew at the time this is wrong, not culturally wrong. This is wrong to my experience. Um, I, I just had this like embodied feeling of like, no, I think what I'm doing right now is okay. Uh, and, and that was confirmed by, there were other people in the space that like whisked Dale away very quickly. <laughs> um, okay, but yeah. so, so I think I knew that, um, but you know what it really uh, twisted in me was it, it twisted this question of, well, I just had an older man tell me, essentially, I'm not a man if I if I cry. And so what does it mean to be a man? What is the spirituality of masculinity? What's the spirituality of manhood? Um, and just what does it mean? And that was a you know, I, for a few years, uh, for several years, I've been involved in uh, a men's group and uh, what we generally consider men's work. And so much of it is around understanding that so many men have been taught that our worth is in the towers we build for ourselves. 
and no matter what our age is and and at a certain point of our life that's important mm-hmm. i recognize that at this point in my life uh it was a very here's another story it was a very hu- uh, humbling moment i w- have always wanted to be older than i think i am and so i had this image that oh my tower is already built. I'm actually in the the other stage of life. I now get to tear it down and say, I don't need this. All is, you know, all is with the wind. And it was a big moment for me to recognize, no, I'm actually in my tower building phase and that's healthy. And to build my tower knowing that at some point in my life and the, to keep open and curious because at some point in my life, I'm going to recognize that the tower I've built is not the tower, um, is, is not the, the worth I have so that I can, you know, build a tower that's flexible and ready to come back down. Uh, so I think that that's been a part of my story as well. <laughs> no, I really like that. I mean, I know you studied, you got to work with, um, what like Richard Rohr and, and his mm-hmm. group, and he has, I um, mean, it's just interesting. It, um, my wife and I, I mean, it's one of my favorite books is um, Falling Upwards, uh, Spirituality for Two Abs of Life. And we literally, my wife and I, I mean, I've read it like three times, but we listened to an audio book just finished um, about a week ago in Feb- you know, February 2023 when we we're talking, you know, and I love that that model. And in a sense, um, you've a lot of the, the the these constrictions that you name, these inner critic pieces, these are those voices that at some level give some people it's uh, um the kick or the drive it's the thing that we run from so that we can sort of build the container um and i think one of the the cool things i mean i'm on the other side of this thing at some level i'm in my 50s now um and you know and i built pretty good container but it pretty took uh kick the crap out of myself to be able to do it and uh you know i'm in this um mellowing out stage now so i can uh you know like I always joke say well my sometimes the purpose of your life is to be a warning to other people and so uh mm. I, I, <laughs> say yep. that with a smile but uh <laughs> but but what i what i really like is that you're a younger man still um and and you've already kind of detected this piece early on so how open are you finding i don't know emerging generations to the work that goes into deconstructing how we were raised stuff that a coach said or your dad or your mom or what Mm. because that's where these tapes come from i mean no kid generates these tapes at least i don't think they do so like what do do you how would you respond you know um so in in the book i talk about these constrictions and and some examples of constrictions i'm not good enough i'm not lovable i'm not in control there's these you know these stories we tell ourselves about ourselves the thing that's important about them is that when you know what you just said no kid comes up with them on their own um they form in us as a protective mechanism uh because of something we're going through or something we're experiencing you know right that through the kids eyes how are they understanding what's what's around them. And so very young, I picked up this, I'm not good enough um, view of myself. As I've worked with other folks that have, uh, you know, any number of inner uh, constricting narratives, what I think is really interesting is that 30 year old to to 45 year olds, um, especially those who are not actively engaged in the church, have a much easier time accessing the inner work and and leaning into the inner work that it takes to really take a Richard always says take a long loving look at the real take a long loving look at um the the both the real so that you can recognize all the the junk that's also there and my on the other side I've really experienced um 
I, I joke around sometimes and say, in every church community, I think there's three people. I think there's three people that are open and curious enough and like deeply yearning for um, deep for for depth for for an experience of depth because there's something in their bodies resonating. There's something that is um, reverberating through them. Howard Thurman talks about the sound of the genuine. I think for them, there's something about their experience that has opened them to beginning to hear the sound of the genuine coming up and emerging through them. And so I try to speak to those three people. And so I have this 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 fun little um, mix because there's a there's a lot more difficulty for those who have for those who are still engaged in the church. A question I have is, uh, what is the sense of self you have that is tied to the community, the faith community that you're in, right? Because I think a lot of us, we grow up in institutions and we become identified with the institutions. And so it's really hard uh, to say, one, this institution isn't bringing me to the depth I think there is. And and two, this has definitely my, been my experience here in the Northwest. It's really hard for folks to say, and it's okay that the institution isn't the end all be all. It's okay to let it, let it go away because there's something more um, uh, to the core of us that's going to emerge. Yeah, it's good. Uh, and I want to make an observation and, and just uh, just based on what you just said, too. It's like, um, you know, we have well slightly different origin stories. I mean, you, we both have been blessed by the United Methodist Church. I mean, you've identified that you were part of, I mean, Western jurisdiction, progressive United Methodism. I've always, I was nurtured and grew up in traditional United Methodism. My home church was actually Evangelical United Brethren and even Evangelicals. So I have this real pietistic piece, grew up in holiness emphasis <clears throat> yet at some level when i read your book i mean looked at it, it's like I, I resonate with this inner life thing and then you then you're here saying there's three people in every church which means that literally let's just talk ideology when we try to get at truth claims about all this stuff so it doesn't matter if you're from the left or from the right yeah something either inoculates us within the church from doing this work, especially since I heard you say that people outside are more open. So how do you make sense, <laughs> make sense of that? Oh, man. Well, so the, the framework I use is shadow work. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of people who are in the shadow, uh, for those of you, that's a new phrase. A shadow is something or a part of you that you don't want to look at. Mm -hmm. And you certainly don't want others to see. Um, so for example, uh, in the book, all these constrictions for most of us, those are shadows. Those are personal shadows, things that, you know, you might not even recognize about yourself, but when you read it, read the words, you go, oh shoot, <laughs> that is what I've been feeling. Right. Um, most people in the shadow workspace stop at personal shadows. Mm -hmm. And what I, what I really try to lean into is there are also communal shadows. And so when I think about churches, um, or really any institution, you can think about your family, even you can think about your workplace. What are the stories of your community that uh, that the people in charge or the people with power, with rank, with privilege, definitely don't want everyone to look at? What are the things that are too big to fail? What are the things that, if questioned, would challenge the status quo and the structure of the space, right? And so I think with, with churches in particular, what's really difficult is that there are communal shadows that need to be faced. For some churches, here's a really basic one, um, in the Northwest especially, but when church attendance is declining, 
right? How many people want to have an honest conversation about really what are the root causes of that? Because it's never uh, because of your marketing. <laughs> That's never the answer. Um, there's always something deeper. And I think similarly, when you uh, when we talk about the inner work, what would your institution have to lean into or lean away from to uh, to give time, effort, energy to saying, actually, what we all really need to do, what will make us better in this community and what will make us um, better at walking the walk of Jesus, what will make that better is that we need to take time to do our inner work. And that might include, we all need to be going to therapy. But it also might include, um, we need to get real about what are the things we don't want to look at and name them publicly and set up structures that reduce the harm that can be caused when you name things publicly, right? There's And there's a lot there. I mean, it, it's, it's hard because I also think pastors aren't trained, right? Pastors are trained um, and, and people to some extent. Um, the people who are still in church spaces are people for whom the church space has largely benefited. And so the questions that challenge that structure that is benefit, those are hard to look at. Those are hard to look at. That's good. And, and I do want to say that I know a lot of pastors listen to this show and, um, and you know, I have my own, I have a coaching practice for, for pastors where we try to work through a lot of this. And I, I know that books, some of the, even the folks that work with me and that we always talk about books we read. I know a lot of folks are reading um, books similar in vain to to your book. I can't even think. I think Craig Groeschel has a book um, about lies or something that we believe. I forget what the things are. Mm -hmm. So it's it's interesting that that this is 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 coming up. And the thing I like about um, your your particular book, the the un unmasking uh, the inner critic, is um, a lot of times. <laughs> for black again i'm not a psychologist um but mm -hmm. i would call it cbt approaches so you're essentially just um and there's something to that like you can make up an affirmation to try to replace the other one but you cut to the chase in a way that resonates with me and my own growth because i've cbt'd all my thoughts for a long time <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and by the way i'm taught cognitive behavioral therapy for those that don't know what i'm talking about uh, not, i'm not saying cbd and uh, uh <laughs> just to just to be clear on that one but the, uh you know and just playing with the uh, thoughts using affirmations and those those actually work but your book beautifully um uh, uses um, body practices. In other yeah. words, it's not so much hit the thought, I'm not enough. It's deal with what I don't know. Um, the language I like to use is the the um, emotional charge or even, I don't know, the electrical charge, yeah. the energy charge that's sitting inside of us. Um, I mean, they hit with a, like if we were Buddhist, they would call like samskara or something like that. It's yeah. these um pain points, these ghosts that live inside of us, and you get it right at the body level. So how did you become aware of, I mean, literally um, the importance of of the body over against just thinking the right things? Um, well, you know, I'll, I'll start with a phrase that has really resonated with me. Um, so I'll, I'll lead with it. But it's that most of us in Western culture, especially Western Christian culture, which those two are pretty similar. Um, most of us have been taught that our bodies are just vehicles for our brains. It's good. Right. Like I, I think that is a foundational myth that we have that is so infused that it, it's hard to get out of. And so for a lot of us, our default way of knowing um, is, is our heads. How do you know, what do we think about this? Right. CBT makes a lot of sense in that context. And 
Think about when you walk down a street and you see something that is scary or challenges your status quo, your point of view, your physical health, right? Anything that makes you, you um, puts you on edge a little bit. Notice that your body reacts before your brain starts cognitively thinking through, right? Your muscles tense up before your brain goes, you're in trouble, right? Our bodies, it's that reptilian piece, right? Our bodies have a protective mechanism that goes into effect. And so uh, when we talk about somatics, so much of the purpose of somatic therapy, for example, and so much of what I try to get at in this book is that in working with our constrictions, those constricting narratives, it's not enough to just journal about it. Although like I literally give journaling prompts and journaling space in the book. So it's a huge part, but it's not enough because what makes, um, when I think about myself, I'm not good enough. I know where that constriction impacts me in my body. It's my lower back and it's my shoulders. My muscles tense up. Or when I feel like I'm not in control, where does that show up? My muscles in my upper back. And so part of the work is the awareness that your body has wisdom for you. Your body is actively communicating. And that's something the church is like woefully not touching, far, like by and large from what I have experienced, is how do we trust our bodies? And here's a simple practice. Um, or it's not really a practice. It's kind of a daily thing that I do. Whenever I feel my shoulder muscles tighten up, I ask myself, what am I trying to control right now? It's good. Because literally 100% of the time, there will be an answer. And I think that tells me, oh, my body is trying, trying so hard to communicate something to me. Um, I need to begin to tune in to, to its language. So that's that's part of that work as well. And there's kind of an irony with that because I, I again I 100% resonate with what you what you just said. Um, find it super helpful, and in a sense, the um, antidote for these things is actually a, a Christian concept, which is called surrender. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, but but the irony is kind of theologically. You named it. Um, there's a. I guess there's a there's a nervousness. It's almost a Gnosticism, even though the church will throw Gnostic at other people, but. To me, the Gnostics actually understood their bodies. It's the, the Orthodox folks didn't. And then they throw the yeah. label on the other folks. And again, I'm not arguing for heterodoxy on the podcast. You're just making an observation um, in that a lot of traditional Christianity has tried to, it's actually been afraid of the body at some level and then suppress things. Um, yeah. So there's a theological problem. Um, and I guess it's on the both progressive and the more evangelical sides that doesn't know what to actually do with the body. So um, I don't know, that wasn't really a question, but how would you just respond <laughs> to that? You know, the, the biggest thing I think of is um, when we get into community spaces, there's almost always a mechanism of control. And I think it's a lot easier to control bodies when you control minds. And so when we think about the institutional church over the past, you know, 1500 years, 1700 years, when we think about the institutional church as a, um, once it took over empire building, right? Um, it became a power structure that was there for the uh, support and continuation of itself. And so when I uh, look around at the theologies in front of me and I see the body is missing, I think at some point, um, this institution and our, and our theological basis 
um, the, you know, the, the default theology you'll find in most churches, conservative all the way to progressive. There are some basic building blocks of Christian theology that are basically unquestioned. Um, one example is pretty much every church you go to, you'll see the word Lord used, right? Kind of this feudalistic language that has never been shifted or changed much. Um, and so when I look around and I, I see that, I, I think about the power structure of it is easier to get people in line with a theology. It's easier to get people to keep coming to church afraid for their souls or, or for whatever reason, um, if they believe things intellectually and are then told in those spaces, don't trust your body, right? Um, trust your trust your mind, trust the people in front of you, trust the priest. And by the way, uh, the priest is going to speak a language you can't even understand, <laughs> right? And so I, I, I think it's power. I think when we shut down people's ability to trust their own guts, to trust their own bodies, um, then there's a group of people that then can have a lot more power. Um, and all and a personal experience of this, all you got to do is go to ultra fundamentalist conservative spaces and listen to what they teach about women mm -hmm. and to listen to what they teach about a, a woman's place. And I'm putting air quotes, right? Um, there's so much rejection of the intuitive, so much rejection of trusting your body, so much reject, so much rejection of um, recognizing that um, recognizing that what you're going through is wrong, right? Recognizing patriarchy in those spaces, um, and if you teach a person to not trust themselves, then the what's left is that they're they'll trust you. That's good. I mean, that's I think that's that's dead on. And so, in a sense, um, you know, when we think of wisdom. I mean, again. Um, that's always been sort of a, it can be imaged in a feminine style and mm -hmm. wisdom always has to do with um, kind of na um, natural theology or whatever general revelation type of stuff. And, uh, and that's the part that sometimes um, we don't trust. And so yeah. to kind of turn this into the, the body stuff, it's like, what would you say to someone that's like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe that Brian just said that. And, and, uh, and or, and Andrew's saying that too here. So, um, like, um, how, how do, would you, how would you start by to, with a person who's like, okay, I don't even know what you're talking about. Like, like what's the first step in just noticing that, um, or an embodied soul over against just a soul that happens to, be in a meat suit or whatever you times <laughs> you hear people say. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, you know, the, the foundational practice is awareness. Um, and, and I'll go to my theology for this, my spirituality. Um, I have a spirituality that takes very seriously that if God created us in God's image, um, just as a person who has created anything, right? That means that God or a piece of God is within me, right? Is mm -hmm. within us, right? That there, there has been an imprint that's based, that's, I, I've rarely had anyone who has an argument with that one. Um, imago, de, right? It's all there. Um, if that is true, um, then for me, it becomes very basic that I need to at least become aware of all of creation, right? If if God has created this meat sack, <laughs> right, with this brain that I am, uh, then the least I can do is pay attention to it because clearly it's important. Um, the least I can do is become aware. So the practice I would offer is take five minutes a day, or you can start how I started, which was driving through the worst Seattle traffic you can possibly get through. Yeah, there's a contemplative <laughs> and, practice for you there. No, it, thanks. And, it, and for me, it was for me. It was, I would, um, 
I would go from, I went to Seattle Pacific University for a couple of years, which oh, is cool. uh, in, in, uh, on the West side of Seattle. And I was dating someone who was on the Southeast. So every day I would go into the heart of the downtown at 4.30 PM, like rush hour, beginning of rush hour. And I would go through the Mercer mess as it was called, just stop and go and, and cars doing the most terrible things you've ever seen. Um, and what my spiritual practice became is as I'm going, and I was pretty pissed for the most time. Right. Um, but what my spiritual practice became is when I felt myself getting angry, right. So awareness of the body and there's nowhere I can go, right. I'm trapped. I'm in this car, um, awareness of the body. I'm angry. And then look around and begin, I would begin to tell stories. I wonder if, right, the act of curiosity, I wonder if that person's acting like that because they're needing to get to the hospital. I wonder if that person's acting like that because they've just experienced a deep trauma and they're just not embodied right now. And so it was a contemplative practice for me that I would offer is take five minutes a day or just make it part of your practice. Uh, I have a bunch of little rocks next to me right now, and I sometimes keep them in a jeans pocket. And every time I'll touch it, I'll say, what's my body feeling right now? And I'll think through the the muscle groups that are uh, most likely to get you know tense. So for me, it's I, uh, I clench my jaw, uh, shoulders, definitely, lower back, uh, and then I get knee pain. And it's like the muscles around my knees. And so I, I just do a quick check, like, what am I feeling? Or I'll take a big breath and let my shoulders drop. And in that moment, I'll realize, wow, my shoulders have been tight for the entire day and I didn't know. So I think for a person who's starting, awareness of your um, awareness of your body and then begin to use your brain, right? What's going on? Why have my shoulders been like that? What have I just been going through? So start to become aware of yourself and your surroundings because that's where God's going to show up. That's where God already is. And if you can pay attention to, to right here, you can begin to tune into that better. Yeah, so let, let me press you just a little bit there, because yeah. I think this is super important for everybody, because that, that was just, I mean, by the way, that was super clear. And uh, and it's also funny, I could go on and on. I've learned so much from driving and traffic, too. Yeah. Uh, uh, but and uh, that's a crash. That's the tough crash course on contemplation. But I loved um, the rocks in the pocket. It makes me think of rosary. That, so there's an, yep. and, and, you know, having some kind of um, totem or whatever you want to call it that just lets you bring you back into the present moment. But uh, Okay, so I feel, um, and I'm just gonna be 100 honest. I guess right now I just I just feel I feel some tightness between my shoulder blades, and so I'm gonna notice that now. You know, I've heard you kind of say move it up into your brain. Um, is there ever a time when you just notice the discomfort and just kind of sit with it and almost make that kind of a meditation? It's like, okay, I feel tightness, and so I'm just gonna notice the tightness, and that's gonna become my centering thing. Because I've noticed <laughs> this personal experience that um, not always, I mean, sometimes you just need to stretch, right? Because sometimes you, a, yeah. a pain is just, a, <laughs> you've just been sitting too long. But I've noticed sometimes the pain just goes away without even trying to process anything deeper than that, just by, I'm okay. I, just, I feel really uncomfortable and I'm just going to put my notice and attention on that. I mean, so talk a little bit about that and then also talk about the benefit of trying to get underneath. And then I, and I still want to get to at least talk about one of the constrictions with you before we run out of time too. Yeah. 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 Um, hundred percent. Yes. I, I think there's a, for those of us who are so up in our heads, it's almost like a scaffold, right? In order to feel more embodied, we, there's a, there's an in-between space where we need to learn how to pay attention to the small moments, 
right? Oh, I've got a muscle spasm. And then think through and 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 not I'm not talking like deep thought. I'm not mm-hmm. talking like go no. journal for an hour, right? Um, but think through like, oh, I wonder why that's feeling like that, right? It's a practice of I am aware and I get curious. I'm aware and I'm get curious. There uh in asset-based community development, there is a saying that it, questions are more important than answers. And it's because questions drive engagement. Questions drive you to to um, get active in in your world and in your body, understanding who you are. Um, so I think the first step is that awareness and beginning to just get used to being curious. Um, once you've built capacity to just be like, yeah, my shoulders are tight and I'm now just going to sit with that. I think that's, I think what you just said is so powerful because what you're really doing is when you settle, right. When we, when we notice something and we just learn to sit with it, the capacity that that's uh, stretching in us is the capacity to settle our central nervous systems for starters, right? To just take a breath. Uh, so much of the world tells us to go, 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 right? So there's, it's a pretty cu- countercultural thing to be like, no, I'm actually just going to sit. I'm not going to try to fix this right now. But there's another part of it. Victor Frankl, who's the, uh, uh, he survived the Holocaust, uh, um, Austrian, uh, I want to say physicist. That's not right. Um, psychiatrist. Physician. Yeah, psychiatrist. Yeah. Thank you. Um, he has this saying and he says, uh, that between stimulus and response, there's a space. And in that space lies our growth and our freedom. And so I often think about it as uh, stimuli. Stimulus is always going to happen. Shit's going to be real. Things are going to hit the fan. Sorry if you now have to make this explicit. Okay. I don't, I don't think so. So we're right. okay. <laughs> uh, things no, are always no, gonna... no, F, no F-bombs on the show. Great. Though, okay, I, so, I, yeah. I can hold that one. Um you know, things are always going to happen. And when we are on autopilot, we react, right? Thing happens, we react. If we're lucky, we might reflect later. Mm-hmm. And so part of noticing and becoming aware is that that stimulus is still going to occur, right? Things are still going to happen. But if you can slow down and increase your awareness, that's the space in between that Viktor Frankl's talking about. If you can increase your awareness between the stimulus and the response, then you respond more, react less. Um, and and in that's your growth and freedom right there. And, and what if I was going to ask you, and this is this is probably a diff, I, I think I'm going to be aware that this is a difficult question. Um, but like what would you say from your experience, and maybe this is your edge too, but like what's the end game for awareness? Is there some default? space that we're trying to sit in most of the time or is it just a matter of literally just being willing to experience everything the whole gamut like what 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 is if somebody's like okay where am i trying to get Mm. not that this is a competition but i think you kind of like what's the how should i feel if i am i trying to be neutral i mean like how 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 would you answer that you know um teresa of avila in her book the interior castle um for those who haven't read it it's a it's basically a framework for the inner life right um and i'm not going to go through all the all the different dwellings the different steps of it and whatnot and she's um, got quite a castle she built there she's right? got so it's, it's a castle it is a <laughs> castle you got to explore and it's going to take some time <laughs> um but she has this wonderful line and i can't remember it's near the end and she basically what the gist of it is is that all of this being aware, all of this spiritual life, this settling, this tuning in to the divine that's within and around you, um, it's not so that you can become a hermit in the woods. It's not so that you can be blissed out, right? Thomas Keating talked about high-class tranquilizers. 
it's not that good. <laughs> um, but but what it is, she she talks about is um, you get so settled into what is the reality of the moment that you are then able to engage the world from a space of that settled nature. Um, she talks about a butterfly. You're able to the butterfly is able to settle and then take off again, settle and then take off again. Um, and I that has been such a beautiful image for me is that my goal is not to meditate myself into um, total silence and lack of any good in the world. My, my goal is to, if there is a goal, is to become so curious and in love with this moment that I believe the divine is making possible, um, that I can go out and see the things that are blocking um, others and blocking me from, from seeing this moment and help to make change. And that's, that's justice work. That's activism. That was beautiful. I love that. Uh, one of my mentors, um, I say at the end of the podcast sometimes, but uh, he's been through a lot and he's done a lot of work, but he always just says, uh, show up, pay attention. God's got way more invested in this than you do. And, and at some level, I'm not cheapening. I mean, I love what you just said, but that it's, it's that space. Um, yeah, yeah. That's, that was good. Thank you so much. I think that was uh, that was worth it. Anybody listening just to hear what you just said. That was a beautiful answer. So thank you. Um, let's shift just for, and we have a few minutes left. Um, wanted to at least work give people a taste of your of your book i mean you started with your opening story because that's how the book opened to tell about this the, the man that said uh, uh men don't cry or however you yeah. phrase that and then the rest of the books organized um by the essentially the the, the false statement that will be a tape that plays inside of our head. I think we talked before, um, and I'm not looking at your table of contents, but it's either I'm not enough or I'm not good enough is the chapter, right? And yeah. so, and that's a pretty common wound, right? That That's like a shame wound, essentially, yep. I guess. Um, so, you know, let's let's just say that. So you're working with me or uh, you can be trans or whatever, however you want to do that. But like, what's, um, I know that's true. I don't feel like I'm good enough. So, kind of walk everybody through that maybe the body practice or how or, or how you would yeah. counsel someone to begin to open up to a little bit more grace in their lives yeah um well I'll start with uh, which even if I'm not good enough doesn't resonate there's a couple questions that I offer that I think are pretty universal and it's um you know whatever the constriction is I lay out nine of them in the book Whichever one connects and resonates with your story, the first general question is, um, you know, where the heck did this thing come from? <laughs> you know, tune in, become aware of, you know, who helped this show up in your life. And I, I originally was asking, you know, who caused this? And then I backed off that because this isn't about cause. And so much of that question is loaded with shame and guilt and anger and blame. This isn't a blame game. Just who helped this um, this mask, who helped this narrative show up in your life? Um, and being able to look at that non-judgmentally and just say like, yeah, this is, this is it. Then be able to notice the second part, which is the body, which is, and, and where does this actively now show up in my body? Are there any muscle groups that are connected to this one? Are there any, um, you talked about energies. Are there any energies that are connected? I use the language of vibes. Yeah, are there any like vibes that, that are connected to this? Um, or it's, you know, body sensations. But when it comes to I'm not good enough, specifically, um, I think for me, and I'll name that for me in my life, I'm not good enough does one very important protective thing. And it's that it stops me from trying. Mm -hmm. If my inner critic is telling me, 
I, you know, you're not good enough or I'm not good enough, then great. I'm off the hook. I don't need to go and do that thing because if I do, I'm going to fail. And so in some ways it's actually protecting, it's protecting me from failure. And so a question that I, that I can ask and that I, I can work through is, um, you know, this is the the flippant one that my partner and I always go back. Whenever I whenever I'm in my own little I'm not good enough space, she asks me, "What's the worst that could happen?" And I think that is a hell of a question. Um, and I use the word hell very specifically there because I I think the fe- the fear of failing is a type of hell. To be in the space where you want something but you're so internally afraid of what going for that thing might mean that's a special kind of hell. Um, And so I think that's a question of, you know, what's the worst case scenario here? And then being able to work through, um, and this is going to be different for everyone. What I have seen is for some make a a, kind of a checklist, right? What are the things that I have control of or some semblance of control that will help me bite size my way to, to doing something that I don't feel good enough to do. Um, Or, and this is to borrow what you said, I think a lot of the work is sitting with that narrative of I'm not good enough and asking over time, this takes a long time, but asking, and is that true? It is what data points in my life do I have? What are the successes? And I don't mean success as like meritocracy, capitalism, success. I talk, I'm talking like, what are the small little moments where I realize my worth is not connected to my doings? Um, you know, how many people do I have in my life that will smile at me, that will say hello, that care about me, that care for me? Because all of those little data points begin to break down the narrative. Um, yeah. It's good. And it sounds like, I mean, have you read some like Stoics at all, like Seneca and stuff? Because it's because yeah. uh, they, you know, they do that. That sounds like you went Stoic on me there for a minute. And yep. like you have Seneca <laughs> that, uh, is this the thing that I feared? So I dress poor and eat bad food and everything. So I, I get used to not being afraid of the, the failure or, or the, even the control or not control. Yeah. What about flip that? Cause yeah. I mean, I'll just be honest. I mean, that's my, um, the whole enough thing. It totally resonates, but what's interesting about me is I basically would have run through a brick wall to prove I was yeah. good enough. So I never, it never like it was, it had the opposite. It was like the, um, accelerant that basically almost caused me to lose myself to prove it. And I do agree. Some people you can get pushed down, but other people become the, you know, yep. I, was, I mean, you would have liked me. It wasn't like I was mean or anything, but driven. <laughs> yeah. So, so let's flip the question. Then. Yeah. Yeah. What are, the, what are the things you've done in your life that, um, that have been explicitly to deem yourself worthy? Yeah. Everything. Right? Well, Right. And and I think that's, yeah, I mean, I think that's, you know, um, there's a story and we've all heard it, it's the, the myth of Icarus, right? And how it's usually told, I've, you know, been a high school teacher for a bunch of years, a couple of years I taught it. Um, and we, and I read it for the first time and I realized, oh my God, there's a part of this no one talks about. Um, the myth of Icarus, uh, the, the general gist of it is don't fly too high, right? Don't get too close to the sun because your, your wings will, will, will melt and you'll, you'll fall to the abyss. Well, the other part that was told in there is, and don't fly too low, because if you fly too low, your wings will, um, over the ocean, right? They're trying to escape the, the island. Um, don't fly too low because your wings will get wetted and matted by the the water and, and you'll fall to your abyss. And so to what you just said, I think we take these narratives in different directions 
And yet the questions can so often be the same as, and what have you done to either overcorrect or undercorrect or sit within that um, and becoming aware of them and then turning it into the future? And this is the imaginal, right? The imagination in the future. Can I prepare myself with a soft gentleness to try to do something different? I might fail at that and it's fine because that's the point, right? But, but how can I, um, I have a question of how, how can we see the world with soft eyes? How can we see ourselves with soft eyes and know that the best we can do is try to step out into the world with a little bit less constriction and a little bit more openness and curiosity. Yeah, love it. Um, and every, folks, you're just getting a taste of everything. It's in uh, Andrew's uh, book, Unmasking the Inner Critic. He's got really good questions all the way through there. He's got these body practices. Um, let me ask one additional question out of curiosity. Okay, because you know you, you're you're you still you're still a, um, still Christian. You have spirituality and stuff. Yeah. So at some point, grace kicks in. Yeah. Um, and that's the thing. I mean, we're not just trying to like redo tapes and stuff because I mean, the fact of the matter is nobody's getting out of this thing alive. And uh, we all we all need grace, no matter if we sit with discomfort or not. So how have you found that doing these bodied experiences have allowed you to grow? Had more have have experienced grace in a way that opens your heart up to love God, love neighbor, and love yourself um, in you know in increasing ways. Because I mean, to me, that's the end game of all this stuff. Yeah, you know, I um I just was writing about this a couple days ago, and it it is in the book, um, or it's based on it. The word that really jumps out at me is love. Um, mm -hmm. We have so often been taught that love is a commodity that we give and take and receive, right? And all of our music, all of our hymns, all, like so much is this, this commodity-based love. Um, and I think there is a place for this idea of, you know, give it, the English language is limited. Um, my reframe that has really helped me is, uh, what if at my very core is love, right? If we take seriously that God is love line and God created me, then what if I am a little part of that? What if, what if I have a love nature at my very core? That means if that's true, that so much of my awareness, so much of all of my work, all this inner work is about how do I step out in the world with that love nature being the core part of my identity so that I can invite other people, not through my words, but the way I walk, the way that love nature manifests, shows up, e um, emerges, right? How can I invite other people to have the resonance of, oh, that might be in me too. Um, not in a converting way, right? But just in a like, let's make our communities better. Let's make our neighborhoods safer. Let's make it right. Like, and so I think one of the biggest practices for me has been walking in nature because walking amongst the trees and the squirrels, what you notice is that the squirrel doesn't have the constricting narrative that I have. The squirrel is doing what the squirrel do, right? <laughs> the tree is doing what the tree do. And so if I have love nature at my core and those things were also created, which means at some point they have a little bit of it at their core, then how can my how can I be present to my love nature and be present to the love nature around me? That is a practice that leads to openness, curiosity, and ultimately um, love being um, uh, emergent in the world, right? Compassion being emergent. 
And I think that's that's how you shift communities, little, 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 little by little, as how do you show up in new and transformed ways? That's yes, that's 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 just really good. We love because he first loved us, but uh, I mean, all these practices that you share, at least in uh, um, get it's funny. Uh, I mean, you I mean, Paul Tillich is one of my, uh, I always call him one of my, uh, um, uh, uh, well, from from my evangelical side, that's kind of an odd person to quote, but I, I love um, I like Tillich a lot, and and he has that definition of grace, which is um, experience of grace is accepting the fact that you're unconditionally accepted, and to me, you're essentially yeah. describing that, and at that yes. moment, that's what unlocks the love I, I, from these things, and so um, yeah, I love this has been a great interview. I think I could keep going, but I want to start trying to wind down. But before we go, um, so we didn't, I didn't do that. I'm assuming everybody's kind of looking at your book. Um, we just covered one of these yeah. um, inner critic pieces. We just run through the, because it's, it's basically each chapter is one of these things. If you want to run through, just give people a little taste of what else you're covering. And then I'll kind of close out with the the, the rapid questions I'm going to ask you at the end here. Yeah, for sure. So um, I'm not good enough. I'm not important. I'm worthless. These are really wonderful to read, by the way. Um, I'm not in control. I'm not free. I am my trauma. I don't know who I am. I'm not important. Uh, I'm alone. Those those are the those are the big ones. Um, and I always tell people I almost want to put a trigger warning on the front cover because that's um, when you look at them and you ask yourself what's the one that resonates. I almost guarantee if if one doesn't jump out immediately, then ask yourself which one has resonated with me at a formative point in my life. Um, and it'll put some language and I, I hope some understanding of why you are the way you are. That's good. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit just as uh, these are the questions I like to ask everybody. So like what keeps you grounded? Uh, you know, you've done the contemplative work and you've been to the, 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 the school at Richard Rohr's school and got to meet with a lot of these teachers. But like so like what's what's if lack of a better term, what's your rhythm or your life liturgy kind of look like that keeps you grounded? Um, a couple things really jumped to mind. One is uh, walking in nature. It's a constant practice. Um Right now, I'll I'll share that my family's in a lot of stress and anxiety, and Sorry. so one of the, um, you know, my partner keeps telling me, you know, you you've got to find twenty minutes to go walk by the water, because we both know that's that's the grounding, that's the thing that's going to help uh, sustain me in the midst of struggle. Um, along with that, there is nothing like kids to help you break down that ego. Uh, <laughs> and I think that's a um, that's a beautiful part of my life as well as is this interplay between these personal practices I have walking in nature. I like to sit in silence every day for at least a couple minutes. Um, centering prayer has always been an aspiration of mine for 20, you know, 20 minutes, twice a day. Usually it looks like five. Um, and uh, the interplay between those personal practices and the communal practices with my family of how am I attuning to you right now? How am I attending to you right now? Uh, and then the other part is, I go to work. I live a life. And so how do I, uh, I train teachers. That's, that's kind of oh, what cool. my job is. And so how do I show up in the midst of a broken system, right? The education system in the States it is a broken system. How do I show up um, and support these teachers in the midst of burnout and all the things, autopilot, all the things and, and show up. So those are all, they're all practice spaces for me. How, how can I exude my love nature best I can? 
I love it. I love how you connected your actual, your work with um, these practices. So it's embedded. That's, uh, yeah. that's really beautiful. So thanks for doing that and reminding us all that, that that's part of the whole deal too. Yeah. So like, I don't know what's next for you. I mean, you do some writing. Yeah. Is there, is there a part of uh, your soul summons that seems a little scary to you? Or is there like, uh, what's like, what's, 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 what's down the road for you if everything would go perfectly as, as uh, you have in your mind right now? the world would implode. Uh, um, <laughs> um, if everything goes acceptably, um, I I would love one of the things in my life that I don't have enough of right now that I have a deep yearning for is uh, I would love to be part of a cohort program. Um, and so I'm, I'm actually working on that right now. I would love to design a program where, you know, for 30 days, a group of folks that are like-minded can come together and practice these awareness practices every day. Just how are you paying a little bit more attention today than you were yesterday? How, a little bit more today and every day just sharing with each other, um, you know, in a sentence, right? This is what I noticed. This is the beauty I noticed today. This is the fear that came up in me today. Um, and and really creating some community around the vulnerability of this work. Um, I think that is something that I'm excited for. I am scared by, I hope might be a thing and totally might not. I'm kind of holding it all pretty, pretty gently right now. Yeah. Well, I love it. Please reach out if you ever do such a, a thing that sounds, uh, it sounds really good. Just encourage yeah. you in that. Um, cause I think there's, um, there's space for that, but, uh, but that's yeah. good. Thanks for being vulnerable about that in your dream. Uh, yeah. Now, um, again, this is probably the impossible question out of all of them, but if you were just going to take, um, you know, pick two or three books beyond the Bible that have been influential for you in uh, some way uh, that uh, that you think, boy, I think everybody ought to read these two or three books. What what would they really be that have really nurtured your soul in all this? Um, okay, so one is two of them are easy. Um, okay, good. The, the, we've already mentioned Richard Rohr a couple times. Um, which which books do you like the best by Rohr? I mean, this all is of the, them. Yeah, this is the <laughs> funny one. So this is the funny one. Everyone talks about falling upward and I will a hundred percent put a check mark. Like that is a phenomenal book. It's, it has been so foundational for me. The one that really struck me was Immortal Diamond. Yeah, I read and, that one too. It's good. Yeah. It's a good one. And it's a good one. I, uh, I'll i speak to myself at the time I read it. It was a good one for a person who is sitting on this line of, do I even want to stay in the church? Do I want to stay with this Christian story and set of narratives that I have? Um, and is there anything in me that's more than what science or anything more than what just culture in general is telling me? Am I just this sack of flesh? Because that's pretty cool. I'm going to say it from a scientific lens. It's a pretty cool thing if that's it. Um, like totally worthy. Uh, and is there something deeper and and different than that? So Immoral Diamond was is definitely one of them. Um, the second one is Wild Mercy by Mirabai Star. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I think the the tagline is wild it's Wild Mercy, living the fierce and tender wisdom of the women mystics. And holy, I mean, there is just so much wisdom per paragraph um, that. I, I was sitting on the water reading this book and I just kept having these experiences of, wow, this I'm tied into something bigger than just me. And this is beautiful. Um, so I definitely recommend that one. Um, and the third one has uh, very little objectively or tangibly to do with spirituality and yet everything to do with spirituality. Um, and it's my grandmother's hands by Resma Menachem. Uh, Resma Menachem is a trauma specialist that focuses on racism and white supremacy. Um, and what he has done in this book has combined 
a framework and and body practices to really, and I speak, I say this as a as a person with a white body, really helps us understand that um, racism is not something we can solve in our minds. No amount of, uh, for those of you who know the acronym DEI, no amount of DEI trainings in our organizations are going to to uh, really turn the tide until we begin to do the body work. Um, what are the things that our bodies have been trained around when it comes to white supremacy? So, and and for me, that's deeply spiritual. You know, mm-hmm. the book isn't necessarily, but for me, that is deeply spiritual um, and embodied work. So I'd offer those three books. Um, yeah, they're all that's- really good. No, that's really good. And I'm not familiar with the the second two, but they, they both of those sound uh, really good. And yeah, and I think um, it sounds like the last book is on trauma, essentially, then, right? Yeah. Is that so? I mean, yeah, and I, and I think I would put, I mean, I'm not going to argue with you because it doesn't, it's not worth it, but I think, but it's like, um, I think trauma is spiritual. And I think it's the piece that that's the new stuff that's coming out from psychology that I think yes. pastors need to pay attention to because that's the hole in our gospel because we, most of us haven't been trained to process that. And it's nothing against, we're not saying anything bad about Jesus or the Holy Spirit or what God can do in our lives, but there's just, there's trauma layers that essentially to me block off our ability for the grace to actually come in. And so I, I, yes. I always recommend body keeps the score. I love Gabor Mate. I don't know if you've seen so his good. stuff. Um, so good. Yes. But, and these aren't, these aren't Christian people, but who cares? I mean, this is spiritual stuff and they're on to something. And uh, so I just, thanks for brace, raising that attention and connecting it with like um, the, the racial justice work that has to be happened. It's not just, Oh, I'm a racist. Cause I'm a white guy. It's like, we need to get this body stuff worked out and help folks yeah. with trauma. And, and as soon as you understand the trauma behind stuff, it makes it a lot easier. Like, okay, I can own, see what's, what's, what's here. And it isn't just a matter of me not being, yes. you know, I've never done anything bad to a, you know, a, a, a person of color or whatever. That's not the point. It's yeah. It helps you understand it, the systems and stuff. So just thanks for exactly. raising that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's an, it's embodied work. If it's not yes. embodied work, then it's just head work that's kept away in a room. And I, I think so much of this, you said it so beautifully right there. Um, therapy and spirituality for me are really similar because they're both helping us understand and peel away the things that um, get in the way of us seeing what is capital W, capital I. In spiritual spaces, we use God, the divine. In, in therapy spaces, we might use different language, but it's about seeing the world and us uh, for for what's actually happening. That's both spiritual and therapeutic and just damn good. That's good. Thank you. <laughs> well, last question is the easy question. Where can people find your book? Where can people find out more about you? Uh, yeah, so you can go to my website, andrewglang.com. Uh, the book is on Amazon, or you can pick the book up off my website for a couple dollars cheaper. Uh, and the one thing I, I would definitely, if, if you're interested in this and you get the book and and it's not enough, or if a book isn't the thing for you, um, I am offering a shadow work class in October and November of this year that's going to, over the course of six weeks, uh, kind of do a, a deep dive into this in a community setting. So all that's there. It's good. So you're suggesting your book has a wound too. It's not enough. Is that what I hear you, you know, say? It's, ama- it's amazing how that works out as a thing that I've created. <laughs> Just teasing. I love it. I, and I and I think the shadow work is so good too. Hey, this has been an absolute joy for me. It's helped me personally. I appreciate you for um, noticing these, this, even that moment when you were 18 and you can look back noticing that. I don't know how long it took for you to process it, but then putting together such a really helpful resource for people. 
again, uh, um, thanks for being faithful to to your calling, and uh, we wish you really well. And thank you for being my uh, my my guest today, Andrew. Thank you so much. It has been awesome to be here. Easy conversation. <laughs> well, good. And well, everyone, thanks for listening all the way to the end. And until next time, uh, live by faith, be known by love, and be a voice of hope in the world. Amen.